I'm Natasha Livingston, Royal Correspondent for The Mail on Sunday. Welcome to The Crown, Fact or Fiction. This is the podcast where we put royal experts on the sofa, turn on The Crown and tell you if what you're seeing is how things really happened. I'm joined on this in every episode of The Crown, Fact or Fiction by Robert Hartman, royal biographer and mail columnist. Hello, Natasha. And uh, yeah, here we are on episode nine um, out of ten. So I'm expecting... Uh, quite a lot of sort of tidying up of loose ends to start kicking in fairly shortly. You know, we've we've had so many different plot lines, subplots. The narrative's taken us all over the place. Obviously, the start of this series, we had, you know, the sadness and the tragedy of Diana. And then we've gone off in every direction from William and Kate to the demise of the Queen's sister and the rise and rise and rise of Tony Blair and the new Labour movement. So I'm not quite sure where we're going to go, but I, I have a feeling we're in for a bit of sort of a hodgepodge. Yeah, the episode is called Hope Street, which we will see at the end. Um, it's because we returned to St Andrews and that's the name of the street that William and Kate moved into. But it just made me chuckle because you wonder if it reflected a little bit the hope of the writers trying to cram in so many <laughs> different storylines into this episode. They really try and cover a lot of ground and that means that there are going to be a lot of crown conflations of timelines. Um, but let's hope it's enjoyable. And I think, you know, we also need a shift in tone. The last episode ended very poignantly with the death of Princess Margaret um, and lots of flashbacks to the Second World War. So I think from past experience, they do like to sort of go light and shade. So I think we're off to a slightly different start now. <laughs> It has been more than four years since the car crash that tragically cut short the life of your son and Princess Diana. There have been autopsies, coroner's reports, not to mention a two-year investigation led by a judge in France, all concluding that it was an accident. And yet you still refuse to let this issue rest. Why? Because it was not an accident. It was murder, slaughter. Committed by whom? The Dracula British Royal Family. So we've just had the opening sequence there of this episode and Mohamed Al-Fayed is back and he's got some big accusations. He's giving a television interview where he is accusing the royal family of murdering Diana and his son Dodi. He adds very controversial claims that um, Diana was pregnant. This scene actually leaked in October and there was huge controversy uh, saying that it would be very upsetting for the Crown even to repeat these allegations. So at the time, yes, they were very, very controversial claims. This then follows through and we see the Queen is receiving the news of Alfred's allegations, which he's also making in various newspaper interviews. And they're saying that apparently, according to polling, a lot of British people are believing these claims. We're then transported to Scotland. We're in St Andrews and we're back with Prince William. He's uh, going about his university life, going for a run, going for a swim. Uh, but he's hearing through the radio all about Mohammed al claims and the opening of Operation Paget, the investigation, the inquiry into the death of his mother. And obviously they're discussing about how this will be very traumatising for Prince William and Prince Harry to relive this trauma. Uh, we then go back to the Queen. She's talking with the Queen Mother, who is looking very frail, and she's talking about her upcoming jubilee and how she's worried about this. Yeah, we've seen there essentially the sort of the past coming back to haunt the monarchy in the spectre of Mohammed Fire with all his sort of wildest, maddest conspiracy theories. And the Queen is informed that, yes, indeed, large parts of the public do believe that there was some sort of foul play. And she's got enough on her plate because she's looking ahead to her golden jubilee. And 2002, this point in 2002 was an extraordinary moment. Margaret, Princess Margaret's died. The Queen Mother is very ill. The jubilee is coming. And the Queen did have worries. She'd taken such a battering, actually, during the 90s. She hid it well, but there was a sort of crisis of confidence up to a point. And I know this, I've alluded to it in my biography of her and I spoke to people around her. She felt that people weren't going to come out for her jubilee, that the monarchy should not be over-promising. 
And it was her staff around her and Prince Philip and other members of the family who were saying, no, 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 actually, look, you are a much-loved figure. Don't worry about it. There were media reports at the time. There was one of the Times early in 2002 saying that there were very few applications for street parties and that therefore on the basis of this, the public were not interested in the Jubilee and everyone was comparing it with her Silver Jubilee in 1977, which had been a huge success. So there was this sense of... Is the nation ready to celebrate 50 years of Elizabeth II? And fortunately, there were enough people around her to say, ma'am, it's going to be okay. But uh, that's how it's set up at the start of this episode. I come with good news. Kate Middleton is single again. That is good news. The more good news is she's modelling in some university fashion show. And the even better news is that the tone of the show is risque. Apparently, William's definitely coming. Well, better make sure you don't fall over then. Heels, not flats. You still want to show off those legs. It's our duty to make use of the assets God has given us. Does he know you're back on the market? Mum. Maybe find a way of letting him know. Honestly, you're worse than Mrs Bennet. So the action switches back to St Andrews and we see a pensive Prince William, doubtless pondering all these things going on in royal land and there's a knock on the door and in comes one of his chums to say, hey, good news, Kate's back on the market. She's single again. And he definitely perks up at this news and then word reaches Kate that William's going to um, turn up at this fashion show she's due to be taking part in later in the same day and you see this sort of news spread like wildfire and uh, suddenly she's talking to her mother who as ever uh, has has advice on the subject. Carol Middleton is um, once again being sort of painted as a sort of absentee puppet master telling Kate, oh you must do this, you must do that. So obviously she's being brought back into play in this episode. What did you think, Natasha, that moment where William's friend says to him something like, oh, and really good news, this fashion show is risque. I mean, can you imagine sort of students, I mean, I know this was a few years ago, but I mean, it makes it sound like there are a couple of Edwardians, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I know there are meant to be Etonians, but it definitely sounds like the sort of line that was written by an adult and not a teenager. <laughs> So finally, the fashion show is here. I know amongst all of my friends, this was the scene that they were absolutely <laughs> looking forward to seeing. <laughs> we had university fashion shows uh, when I was at university, but definitely in the kind of folklore story about Kate and Wills, this is a moment that really is heralded as, yeah, being a truly magical moment where they locked eyes and William fell in love. I mean, whether or not that is true is, of course, a different question. But here we see Kate struck onto the stage at the university fashion show. And we hear that Prince William uh, has paid £200 for a seat. He had a front row seat and that was £200. So whether everyone else paid that, I don't know. But yes, Kate walks on. She looks fabulous. She's in this tiny see-through dress. And the story is that this was meant to be a skirt and she kind of pulled it up to be a dress, the kind of extra um, risque element. She kind of does a twirl, locks eyes with William. And it's a real sort of coup de foudre. They lock eyes. And I mean, William's almost salivating. I mean, you know, we don't know if this is exactly how it happened, but I think it's a great story. What did you think? It's so well known that that the crown really can't get away from the fact that everybody knows sparks really started flying at this famous fashion show in 2002. And so that's what's recreated here. It's interesting, you look back at sort of royal romances, there are these just these sort of moments that everybody likes to latch onto and say, oh, that's when this got really serious. I mean, with the Queen and Prince Philip, there's always a rather sweet moment at a a wedding in Hampshire in 19... 46, I think it is, or 1947, and you just see Prince Philip taking Princess Elizabeth's coat because he's an usher and there's this little turn of the head and you just see her sort of looking at him and, you, and everybody goes, oh, well, that was that was a very important moment. With Princess Margaret and Group Captain Townsend, it was when she was spotted picking a bit of fluff off his uniform at Westminster Abbey. A beady-eyed newspaper reporter caught sight of that and thought, hang on a second, that's quite an interesting little gesture. So, you know, these are the sort of moments that, that go down in royal folklore you know, how, how, how well did William and Kate know each other up to this point? We don't know. But I think given that, you know, there are, there are a lot of fairly grave issues coming up, it's quite nice to have a bit of student fun in the mix here. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a shame they didn't recreate Prince William's precise dialogue, which was apparently, wow, Kate's hot. I mean, it's not quite Shakespeare, but you know, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty sweet. Um, and my uh, wonderful colleagues at the Mail on Sunday uh, did a feature when we knew that this was coming up where they found uh, the other girls that were in the fashion show and tracked them down and spoke to them. And some of them had some interesting things to say. Rachel James, who is now 44 and living in Texas, she said that this night, the fashion show, it was a very special moment in time and acknowledged that there really is a sort of legend that surrounds this night. Jenny Lederer, who is now an art director, she gave a really interesting quote on the night and said, a lot of girls here are like, I'm here to meet the prince and marry the future king of England. And that's their whole purpose for being here. So, you know, it clearly was a sort of element at the time that, you know, maybe not Kate, but some people, you know, were definitely there hoping to catch William's eye. Um, And some of the women have gone on to do some really interesting things. There's another woman in the fashion show, uh, Rebecca Emerson Keeler, who is an expert in conflict resolution has worked with the UN um, so yeah for many people it was a really poignant moment and, and just to say about the dress itself um, it oh, has yes. been who, auctioned who made it yeah so it's a fashion student called Charlotte Todd and she is credited with kind of kindling the royal romance she designed the dress and said as a skirt though it was Kate stepping it up making it a dress they auctioned off the dress for a lot of money in 2011 78,000 pounds and the um, person that bought it who is um, someone called Nikki Roberts Um, said the dress was a symbol of hope and inspiration. Where is that dress now? It's going to be a piece of history, isn't it? Absolutely. That was quite the outfit earlier. You looked incredible. I just felt like doing something drastic. To know... What? If you were interested. Of course I'm interested. I thought you weren't interested. I thought I'd blown it that day in the library. Excuse me, sir. I'm sorry to interrupt. For God's sake, can I be allowed a private life for one minute? Sorry, this can't wait, sir. Operation Taybridge. I'm really sorry. So what we've seen there is Prince William, after the fashion show, absolutely enthralled. There's Kate. She's delighted. She's won her prince's heart and they're just about to kiss or they've just started kissing I think and uh, at which point the detective jumps in with uh, very sorry sir to interrupt you there but Operation Tay Bridge. Operation Tay Bridge was the code name for the death of Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother all members of the royal family have a funeral plan named after a bridge. Yes hers was Operation Tay Bridge it didn't happen then this fashion show did happen in March 2002 Operation Taybridge was actually announced in broad daylight uh, on Easter Saturday 2002. I remember it well, and by which time Prince William and his brother and his father were skiing in the Alps. So this has been made up to drive the narrative along, but uh, it really didn't happen like that, did it, Natasha? Yeah, I mean... Thank God. (laughs) I feel terrible for them. I mean, yeah, William's come out with some of the worst chassis lines ever saying, you know, he's bordering on obsessed. It's all a bit, yeah, it's a bit sort of clunky and cheesy and... um, Yeah. um, I I mean, the dates were pretty close. It said the fashion show was March the 27th, 2002 and as he said, yes, the Queen Mother died on Easter Saturday, which was the 30th of March. So, yeah, they obviously just couldn't resist kind of crashing those two instances together. Um, But, you know, it's not the worst thing we've seen from the crown. You're right. Can't say I'm particularly looking forward to today. Yeah. Yeah, they're dredging up Mummy's accident again, all because of Alfred's crazy claims. And this time they even want to interview me. And why are you? I'm the one who's actually going through what she went through on a daily basis. Picked on and slagged off in the press, so I know better than you what it feels like. Don't ever do that. Compare yourself to her. What she went through was far worse. Well, we've seen the funeral of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. I remember it very well in Westminster Abbey. I was there. They did indeed sing Guide Me, O Thy Great Redeemer, as we hear being played there. It follows a meeting at Buckingham Palace where the Queen is receiving condolences and we see a little argument develop between Harry and William. It follows on from the royal family gathering at Buckingham Palace where there's an argument between William and Harry, they're talking about the fact that uh, Fyatt has dredged up the death of Diana. William says he's got to be interviewed by the police. And Harry says, well, why don't they want to talk to me? William says, well, it's because 
actually, I've got a better recollection. And Harry's upset about this and he feels that he has greater understanding with Diana and what Diana went through. So why aren't they talking to him and, and, and an argument breaks out and the two brothers then sort of patch it up as this hymn carries on the famous um, bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. And, and in between um, verses, we've got these two brothers sort of going, all right, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. And then Harry's saying, well, how's university going? And William says, well, university is actually going quite well, as we all know, don't we, Natasha? Yeah, I think it's interesting. We don't know exactly what their relationship was like at this point between William and Harry. We obviously know now that they have a difficult relationship, whether or not it dates back to this time. I don't think we're quite clear. Spare Prince Harry's memoir came out about halfway through. They were filming this series and, yeah, Peter Morgan said that he hasn't read it, but the research team have said that they did, which may have influenced some of what we just saw there. Um, but I think yeah, very, I can very see there's a bit of retrofitting of <laughs> yes. uh, sort of the Harry later on narrative into Harry in 2002. Yes. One thought that occurred to me is this discussion between Prince Harry and Prince William continues during the funeral for their grandmother at an event that would have been very difficult for them personally, but was also you know, broadcast in front of all of the press, you know, it was on the sort of world stage, really. It was a very much a public event. And you just wonder if that would have been appropriate for them to have had that conversation, whether it would have been possible. And it feels like a moment where the writers are having to squidge various different storylines into a moment just to fit it into the timing. And it is kind of epitomizes that. It, then after we've had this conversation, the sequence of events, it's at the camera pans to Tony Blair and then we sort of segue into his storyline and yeah it just all feels a bit I don't know like a box of celebrations and everything sort of jostling around randomly <laughs> trying to make it all seem like it makes sense Yeah the, the royal family do have a, a, a tactic in these situations where if they're going to have a sort of conversation like that then they lift up their orders of service so that they can't be seen on camera I mean that, the Abbey that day the service was live on TV there were lots of journalists like me not that far away from the royal pews I really can't see that Harry and William will be having a sort of a chat about William's love life in the middle of their grandmother's funeral while there are TV cameras broadcasting. But, you know, who knows? But uh, as you say, at the very end of that scene, it cuts away to a figure who's sitting in the choir stalls, as indeed he was, although I seem to remember he was on the other side of the Abbey, one Tony Blair. So I think uh, suddenly politics is about to come crashing its way into this rather busy episode. I'm grateful to you for cutting your trip short so you could be back in time for the funeral. Well, it was a very moving ceremony. A great turnout up and down the country. People needed no encouragement to show their, their gratitude for a, a remarkable public servant. It gives one great confidence for your golden jubilee. If you felt that confident, Prime Minister, then why have your colleagues been suggesting to local councils that they forego charging for street parties? Presumably because the interest in celebrating was so small. If, if one wanted to be 100% sure, there's sometimes a, an advantage in bringing someone charismatic off the bench, a super sub, to expand your appeal. I was thinking about Prince William. He's young, with enormous star quality. If I can avoid it, I don't want to disturb him at a delicate time in his university studies. Well, we've uh, just seen Blair come for his weekly audience, injecting a bit of sort of real-world politics into the episode. He has come to inform the Queen about the slow descent towards war in Iraq. Um, we're in the Queen's study at Buckingham Palace, and I have to say it does look very much larger in the crown than I think it is in real life. And she thanks Blair for flying back from America for the Queen Mother's funeral. I remember at the time there was quite a celebrated row going on, kick-started, I seem to remember, by the Mail or the Mail on Sunday, over um, Tony Blair trying to, quote, muscle in on the Queen Mother's funeral. I think he let it be known that he would quite like to read the lesson and was told, actually, that was not required. It did get a bit heated between Downing Street and not the palace, but some of the parliamentary authorities. It was an embarrassing moment, I think, for Downing Street. And once again, we see the Queen worried about her Golden Jubilee plans. She's still convinced um, that there are going to be um, no shows and empty streets. And Blair tries to reassure her and then suggests maybe it's time for what he calls a super sub to come off the bench, adopting footballing analogy that I'm quite sure he probably wouldn't have used in front of the Queen. She says, oh, well, Charles is very busy. And Blair says, no, I wasn't thinking about Charles. I was thinking about William. 
Uh, but then uh, there's so much going on in this episode. That's not the only thing being raised here, is it, Natasha? Yeah, because the Queen kind of balks at this suggestion because she says not only is uh, Prince William going through his university studies, which of course is true, but that he's already upset um, by the existence of this police inquiry into his mother's death. But there's a real sort of merging of timelines here because the Queen Mother's funeral was 2002 and the inquiry, Operation Paget, didn't start till 2004. So mm. yeah, it's a real mishmash going on here. Prince William's getting very worried about something that hasn't Two happened. years away from happening. <laughs> Did Princess Diana ever express any fears to you that senior royals and British intelligence services were conspiring to plan an accident in her car? No. Are you aware of a letter written by the princess in which she wrote of her suspicions that you were plotting a deliberate brake failure in her vehicle so as to remove any obstacles to your remarriage? No. What a wretched state of mind she must have been even to imagine such things. Can you, um... Close them. Did your sons, William... So we've just seen the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, Sir John Stevens, arrive at what is shown here to be Highgrove, um, and he is meeting Charles to question him about Diana's death. He's being asked some pretty difficult questions about conspiracies related to Diana. Um, he's asked directly if he contributed to plans to assassinate Diana, which is, yeah, obviously pretty strong. But Charles was actually questioned, wasn't he, in 2005? And William was involved as well. Isn't that right, Robert? Yeah, I mean, we do know that Sir John Stevens, later Lord Stevens, did indeed talk to the Prince of Wales. But I mean, that didn't happen until 2005. That's, that's you know, in the end of 2005. And we're currently uh, pre-Jubilee in early 2002. Um, we, we see the uh, Sir John and his team coming down to Highgrove. Well, from memory, I'm pretty sure, and I'm sure you'll have checked this, it, it happened in London. Uh, yes, um, Prince William did um, give a testimony to the investigation. I think it was a written statement. And there we do see him pondering what he's going to write. But it's definitely bringing the events that are some way into the future, crowbarring them into this this sort of one year. And no sooner does Sir John get in his car and leave than Prince William gets a call. Uh, the Queen wants to see him. And suddenly the action, the plot, everything shifts. You are sweet for coming. Actually, it's it's been reading week, so I've been at Highgrove for a few days. It's quite nice. Though we had the police coming to ask questions about mummy, and things aren't too great between Harry and Pa right now. It's not easy being the number two. It's not all that easy being number one either, is it? Well, you'd know. University should be about having fun and growing up. But you can't have fun when you've got photographers and police officers with you wherever you go. You certainly can't go on a date with a girl. Ah, yes, I wanted to ask you about all that. I'm so pleased you feel able to speak from the heart and tell me these things. I also wanted to, to speak from the heart and ask for your help with my golden jubilee, because I don't mind admitting I'm a little apprehensive about it. Particularly the balcony. So when duty calls, William jumps. There we see him having been summoned by the Queen. He puts on a jacket and tie gets in his age-appropriate Volkswagen Golf, I think that looks broadly in keeping with the era, and drives straight up to the palace for the tea with the Queen. And she says, I hope I haven't you know, brought you all the way down from St Andrews. This, I immediately I just thought, oh, that's all wrong, because the Queen was incredibly considerate. According to the Crown, she thinks she's just summoned William from Scotland and that he's jumped in a car and driven 600 miles because she's asked. And he says, well, actually, no, I've just popped up from Highgrove because I'm having a reading week from university. Even then, the Queen just wouldn't do that. She wouldn't expect people to just sort of drop everything and drive. I mean, it's still a you know good two, three-hour drive from Highgrove up to the palace. It just sort of shows a, a lack of reality on the part of the Queen, which just doesn't ring true. I mean, that's a very minor point, but I just think characterization-wise, it, it's got her wrong. And so they sit down. She's clearly delighted to see him. And they start talking about everything from university and she talks about her jubilee and she starts telling him, doesn't she, about her own youth. 
Yeah, she talks about her fond memories of living in Malta and how she would like to give William, really, a kind of similar opportunity to enjoy a bit of freedom in their younger life. And it is true that um, the Queen, she did have some very happy memories in Malta with Prince Philip. Um, they lived there um, before she was Queen. They did. They lived at a place called the Villa Guadamangia. I went there recently and it's a very forlorn, sad old wreck now, although the Maltese government are trying to do it up. But they had a lovely time there. Prince Philip was a young naval officer serving in the Mediterranean fleet and the Queen absolutely loved it as she alludes to in that scene there it was one of the few times she could drive herself to the hairdressers go shopping they used to love going out dancing in the evenings it was a very happy time it was the only time the Queen wasn't she was called neither princess nor Queen she was known as the Duchess of Edinburgh for four years and she absolutely loved it so that rings true but as we're seeing time and again in this episode Natasha um, that they're jumping from subject to subject, aren't they, the scriptwriters? Because not only is uh, the Queen reminiscing about Malta, but the whole issue of Harry's now resurfacing, isn't it? Yep, they managed to cram him into the conversation. I mean, it's quite a comical line. William's chucking out sort of drug slang at the Queen, talking about how Harry's been caught with the wacky-backy, and she's like, what? And they have to explain what this is. But, you know, exactly how that conversation may or may not have happened, we don't know. But in spare, Prince Harry did admit to uh, graduating to weed at a young age and how he once smoked an entire shopping bag of weed. So there may have been discussions like this happening. Yeah. And then William starts opening up to the Queen about his new girlfriend. And there's a rather nice line there where um, Queen says something like, are you aiming high or something like that? And he says, impossibly high. And the Queen just sort of slips in. Well, I suppose you are something of a catch, (laughs) uh, which is quite sweet. And then William goes on to discuss the Middletons. And this is, again, I just felt a bit uncomfortable here where he sort of says, you know, oh, they live in Berkshire. And the Queen says, oh, that's where we keep all our horses. I mean, give me a break. You know, the royal county of Berkshire, it's where Windsor is. She's spent most of her life there. She doesn't need to be told, A, what Berkshire is, or B, regarded as some sort of farmyard for animals. And then William says, oh, and they they, they even eat in the kitchen. And the Queen comes up with a very sort of snobby remark and says, you know, why they're behaving like staff. Yeah, I hated that line. It just makes the, as you say, there's no other way that that could come across without making the Queen look like a complete snob. Snob and detached and out of touch with the reality. I mean, actually, what we know is when the Queen and, and Prince Philip, yeah, they, I mean, they did maintain traditions. They did like to sort of dress for dinner and those sort of things. But they also, they completely understood how people lived. I mean, they were often at their happiest. Whenever the Queen went up to Balmoral, she loved staying in a place called Craigowan Lodge, which is very small. I mean, there's a lot of sort of sitting around the kitchen table there. And yeah, it's sort of trying to, on On the one hand, the Windsors and William living in this sort of ivory tower against the normality of life, Shane Middleton. I think I can see where that's going to take us later in this episode. But uh, it's still, it's quite affectionate. There's a clear rapport there between monarch and heir to the heir, who is obviously devoted to his grandmother. And so finally, having uh, brought the Queen fully up to speed with his love life, Prince William, I think, is about to call the love of his life. We'll be back with more after the break. So the Queen knows who I am? More than that. She hopes to meet you one day. Amazing. Doesn't that terrify you? You always say how great she is and how protective she is of you. She really is. She just gave me a pass to skip most of the Jubilee event. So you could come and watch with us? With your family? You could give a running commentary. (laughs) With a unique insight. (laughs) (laughs) So we've just seen Prince William and Kate speaking on the phone. Um, They're talking about potentially spending the Golden Jubilee together, which of course is in 2002. Before they make any big decisions, um, William has to wait to get the results of the end of the police inquiry. slight problem with this is that the inquiry ended in 2006 and we jump immediately to Lord Stevens presenting the report at the end of the investigation and we see a press conference which did happen but on the 14th of December 2006 so we're really 
really skipping ahead here. Over four years uh, ahead. Uh, I mean, you know, in that regard, I know the the Crown producers and scriptwriters have gone to great lengths in some of their press interviews to say how closely researched this is and how they've studied Operation Paget very closely, which indeed, looking at it, I think they have. Well, the one thing they didn't look very closely at was the date on the front of it because they've jumped four years down the track. However, in essence, the substance of it is there. Yes, Sir John Stevens, later Lord Stevens, did brief Harry and William on the findings of the 800-page report. And he did, as you say, Natasha, he gave a press conference and he made it very clear that this was an accident. And he specifically said that all the conspiracy theories, he demolished, basically, he absolutely trashed the fired conspiracy theories about MI6 and collusion and all this stuff. He said this really was down to the fact that we had a drunk driver driving twice the speed limit nobody was wearing seatbelts. He likened it actually at the time to the analysis after a a, a plane crash, the way that a sort of series of events, one thing leads to another leads to another. And uh, it's, it's, I think, fairly effective in that regards. We also see that John Stevens' character make the point that Princess was traveling in Fired's car at Fired's direction, driven by Fired's driver with a Fired bodyguard between two Fired properties, you know, ultimately reminding viewers if anyone's really going to be blamed for what happened that night, then perhaps Mohammed Fayed should be looking in a mirror. However, I don't think he's going to take it that way. It was definitely interesting how they portrayed William and Harry receiving the news. It wasn't silent, but it had the audio of the press conference over it, which kind of avoided the details of how they reacted, though they look pretty angry and upset. I think that was wise because we don't know exactly what happened. Lord Stevens said it was a very kind of emotional conversation. I think he said the meeting where he relayed the results of the inquiry was 99 minutes. And then Harry said in spare that after the inquiry concluded, they jointly wanted to release a statement, maybe even hold their own press conference, basically calling for the inquiry to be reopened. But Harry said that they were talked out of it by the powers that be. He even went on to say that the inquiry's conclusions were convenient and absurd. Obviously, Spare was very controversial. Prince William hasn't spoken about this recently. I think it's probably wise that they kept that particular conversation muted. Well, the other point that they overlook is actually that wasn't the end of it. I mean, yes, Operation Paget had started way back in 2004. This press conference is happening at the end of 2006. But the following year, then we get into the coroner's inquest, and that doesn't actually finally reach its conclusion until 2008. So for over four years, this thing is going on. What the Crown is sort of implying here is, oh, that's it. They've drawn a line under it. Actually, there's another two years of this stuff stuff to go. But clearly, Mohammed Fayyad is furious. Let's see what he has to say. For almost 40 years, I have lived in the United Kingdom. Yet, I am forced to leave after a campaign of persecution. The perpetrators of this tyranny are the British establishment, in particular, the racist royal family that sits at its heart. The British their government, and their Dracula royal family, they can burn in hell. Salaamu Alaikum. Well, there we had a completely bonkers rant from Mohammed Fayed, combining various remarks he's made over the years, talking about the Brits um, running around in animal skins while Egypt was building the pyramids, calling the family all manner of names. I mean, he didn't come out and sort of stand on the steps and say this sort of thing. I think from memory, he sort of broadly took it on the chin. He says, I'm leaving the country. I've been thrown out. Odd that he felt he was leaving the country because actually 20 years later, it was London where he died for at least another 10 years after this. He hated Britain and and was hated so much that he still continued to own all sorts of businesses here, including Fulham Football Club. So I think it's sort of, he's being sort of written out of the script here. And um, it's, it's one way of doing it. But I felt It was the sort of last gasp of a madman, didn't you? Yeah, I think most of the comments that they allude to here were made um, during Alfred's court appearance at the end of the inquest in 2008. um, And that's where he really attacked um, Stephen's report. He said it was completely false and suggested dark forces were involved. Yeah, the appearance, it was very emotional. He accused Prince Philip of being a Nazi and a racist. So, yeah, he really did kind of... Loses marbles, make and a lot calls, of allegations. Calls the royal family Dracula. Yes. Uh, which 
is interesting. Uh, they do actually have um, Transylvanian ancestry. The Queen's great-grandmother, I think maybe great-great-grandmother, was Countess Claudine Rede, who was indeed a Transylvanian countess. And Prince Charles has always been, or now King Charles, has always been very interested in that strand of, of family history because he takes a great love for the Saxon culture in Transylvania and has actually gone on and uh, and bought a, a farmhouse there, which he's set up as a charitable foundation and even rents out. So in that regard, the one element of the fired rant, the Dracula reference, there is a there is a scintilla of, of fact there. Um, but I think the rest of it really is um, utter fiction. Yeah, and it's a connection that um, King Charles is, he's not ashamed of. He even joked um, on a visit to Romania, you could say I have a stake in the country. Ba-boom. <laughs> how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Hippa! Coming. Hello. Hello. Welcome. She doesn't like these sort of big events. She's actually quite shy. Are you all right? I was just thinking after the lunch... She's got the parade. After the parade, she's got the dreaded balcony and... Yeah. I know she gave me a pass to miss it all, but I can't help feeling that I should be with her. So that scene began with Prince William arriving at the Middleton home. It looks like a Laura Ashley advert, as we saw before. It's kind of the picture of a perfect middle-class life. They're all sitting down around the sofa um, watching the Queen begin the Golden Jubilee celebrations. The Middletons are asking questions about the Queen and William is saying how she likes horses and dogs, but maybe he's not quite so keen on Prime Minister Blair, who the joke uh, she might call President Blair. And William kind of has this realisation that he needs to be with the Queen. Um, And there's this scene, it's almost like a sort of running to the airport at the end of a rom-com where he's racing back to London to meet the Queen before she does the dreaded balcony. It goes on to the crowds, uh, but she's worried it might not be there. And, you know, it's a lovely scene, but it's just not true. No, Natasha, as ever, um, I'm afraid uh, it wasn't really like that. William and Harry played a very key central role in the Golden Jubilee celebrations and seem very happy to do so. As you say, it opens the sequence with William turning up for lunch at the Middletons and watching it all. Again, I do feel sorry for the the Middleton family. The scriptwriters have sort of decided to dream up their political affiliations. You know, they start asking William about prime ministers. There's no way William would talk about what his grandmother thought about this prime minister or that prime minister with people he hardly knew. He just wouldn't. Queen was always actually very careful not to give anyone any inkling as to what she thought about any of her prime ministers. What does come through here is the way in which William is instantly at ease with the Middleton family. He clearly enjoys sitting down with them, meeting them. Then, as you say, it's a bit like a sort of rom-com. It's suddenly, oh my gosh, I've got to dash back to the palace because Granny's about to appear on the balcony and she'll be feeling a bit lost and lonely. I mean, you know, just nonsense. But anyway, there we have it. And uh, he's back in the Black Golf GTI, whizzing through the traffic to get there just in the nick of time. Those scenes, by the way, that we see of delirious crowds uh, filling the mall, I mean, those were genuine. I well remember that day. They came back from their lunch in the city. There was a sort of carnival of children around them, I seem to remember, and then they did appear on the balcony. But those scenes, the crowds were so big and so genuine and so exuberant. One of those shots there we saw there formed part of the official bid by Sebastian Coe and the Princess Royal and the rest of the bid team who were trying to win the 2012 Olympics for London. I know this because um, I've talked to Seb Kerr about it and they actually used some of this real footage to show, look, this country really doesn't know how to put on a party. Here's one we had earlier and they showed shots of the Golden Jubilee. So that does ring true. Yes, of course, the Queen was thrilled to have the family alongside her that day. But I think long before this moment, she was more than aware that actually a, a corner had been turned, that there had been, if you like, a, a sort of rapprochement between the monarchy and the people. 
There were just two scenes, really, that I rather liked to have seen in there. Um, one was uh, right at the end of that balcony appearance, extraordinary sight of Concord coming down the mall, flanked by the Red Arrows. I mean, that really was extraordinary. Uh, and the other, of course, was, uh, I think it was the day before, maybe two days before, when we had Queen guitarist Brian May up on the roof of the palace, kicking off the Jubilee concert with the national anthem on his electric guitar. Really absolute standout moment, which I, to this day, still puts, makes, makes the hair on the back of my neck go up. I mean, it sounds fabulous. I don't have any memories of it myself because I was only four years old, (laughs) which is painful, I'm sure, (laughs) to compare. But I did meticulously um, look at the video footage, particularly of the balcony moment. And this is something the Crown are good at. They have recreated a Queen's outfit and they nearly... They've just tampered with it a little bit with the structure in that it was the Queen and Prince Philip who came out first, just the two of them. And then it was Prince William, Prince Harry and Prince Charles who came out behind and they did get a really huge cheer. And the video I watched that, you know, the commentator over the top noticed that fans were screaming as the two Mm. young princes came out. But they show us a final scene of the balcony where to kind of emphasise this storyline of William being really close to the Queen and William is standing to the left of the Queen. This did happen for a moment, just as they came out on the balcony, but by the time that all the extra royals were on the balcony, I'm looking at the picture now, William is way down the end, well away from the Queen. So, you know, they've tweaked things there slightly just to kind of push their narrative, but I don't think that does any harm, really, in the grand scheme of things. No, I think a bit of balcony choreography is permissible. So uh, fact or fiction, quite good on the fact. The backstory, as we said, is utter nonsense. William was playing a full part in all this, but it's a nice way of rounding off the jubilee of bringing the narrative of this episode, and indeed the series, back to the idea that, you know, the Queen is back. So, when are you going back? Uh, it's St Andrews. Yeah. Uh, tomorrow. I'm looking at a couple of houses for next year. There's this place on Hope Street which looks good, but mm-hmm. it's got four bedrooms and There's just three of us, unless you happen to know a fourth. Well, were you thinking a boy or a girl? Probably a girl. Is that an invitation? Well, I would have to ask the others. Of course. But I'm sure they'll approve. So the Golden Jubilee is over and Prince William is on the phone to Kate and they're talking about their next steps at St Andrews and William is saying that he is looking to move in with two friends, Fergus and Olivia, to a place on Hope Street but it has four bedrooms and he sort of coyly invites Kate to move in. They did live on Hope Street. I I honestly thought when I saw this, I thought that is too poetic. It can't really really (laughs) live somewhere called Hope Street but they did. I think it was 30 a Hope Street and it was quite a, a humble house really uh, the kitchen was very small I think it's kind of quite accurately depicted there but I think we've got here they paid £100 per week each so really um wasn't a lot of money. The exact steps of how it happened is probably not how it was depicted here. Uh, I think they decided earlier on that they were going to live together, but the choice of the house on Hope Street came later um, and it had to have renovations for security. And the landlady, Charlotte Smith, really wasn't keen to have boys living in her house. But one of the girls in the group tried to persuade her. The landlady later recalled, I said to this young lady, we'd rather not have more boys. To which she said, what if I were to tell you that it was Prince William? They met with Fergus, Olivia and Kate, uh, were persuaded that they were going to be ideal tenants. Um, and that she was, you know, she thought, we don't need to meet William. I'm sure he has a good enough credit rating. But he apparently insisted on meeting them and said after that they were very good tenants. So yeah I think this is pretty pretty close to fact really uh, again we had at the end there um, a reminder of the Queen's uh, halcyon young days as a naval wife in Malta there was some rather sweet footage of uh, of her and Prince Philip whizzing along a cliff road in an open top sports car and sploshing around in the sea a reminder yeah that you know she was young once and that she still looked back on those Days very happily. I mean, right at the end, there's a knock on the door. The policeman opens it, opens a parcel. It's a signed portrait from the Queen um, saying that she hopes 
um, that William and Catherine will um, enjoy their own villa Guadamangia. Um, I think they they rather did have their own villa Guadamangia some years later when they were newlyweds and living in Anglesey when William was a helicopter pilot. But obviously that's outside the scope of the series because it's about to wind up. And yet again, the scriptwriters and producers are cramming in all these loose ends to try and get the thing rounded off, if you like. But um, yes, it's quite a, a sweet ending on a factual note. So as ever with The Crown, um, fact or fiction, a bit of both. I don't think this has been necessarily one of the worst episodes for fiction. There have been some pretty iffy moments, I think, Natasha. But overall, where would you place this in the context of the series? Yeah, I think it was pretty good. I think by the effort to cram so much in and add bits of tension, there's the bits that just are kind of a bit silly, as you say, William sort of rushing back to appear on the balcony. It just feels a bit silly. And, and the entire inquest into Diana, yes. which had the years are all start just for yeah. another two years. Yeah, yeah. and um, and as you say, probably in an effort to make that period in St Andrews be almost better than it was. Um, there's a bit that really made me laugh and we see William and Kate sort of walking, smiling, they're walking through the rain in St Andrews. It is really pouring it down and they're carrying shopping bags but they look like the happiest couple in the world. They're sort of like strolling along. This is some huge romantic scene. I mean, carrying your shopping bags in the rain in Scotland at university is not a romantic scene but they've tried to make it out like it is, you know, and props to them for that. Well, good, good advert for the St Andrews Tourist Board anyway. <laughs> We've often said on this podcast that the Crown takes great liberties with conversations that never happened, imagining how people might react to this or that. And it's bad enough when they're no longer with us. But in many cases, as the series has moved on, these are people alive and well and possibly even watching. And so it can't always be easy. And I'm very glad to say we've been joined by a member of one family which really has, I think, had to put up with a hell of a lot from this series. Uh, it's a great pleasure to introduce Gary Goldsmith, who is both the uncle of the Princess of Wales and a very proud and loyal brother of Carol Middleton. Gary, welcome. And if I could begin by asking you your views on the crown overall. Thank you very much for having me here. So I really, really enjoyed the first couple of episodes and the first series of the crown. But it seems to just drift off into this fantasy world, and now it's become a soap opera. And there's so many parts of it that I don't agree with. And I think that the narrative of the truth has gone out of the way for trying to get headlines and viewing audience. So once it starts becoming ridiculous and fantastical, it was very difficult to watch. So I stopped. I think from people around the world watching it, they're seeing this and they're believing the truth. And we're thinking, am I watching The Crown or is it Coronation Street? Well, I think it's just made up. Can I ask, do you think, would your sister watch it? I hope you advise her not to watch it. I think the family's a bit too classy to watch stuff like that. Right. But I would say there's probably someone taking notes and saying they've said this. I don't understand why Carol hasn't taken legal action because literally I just thought it was that bad. Carol isn't that manipulative, evil person sat in a dungeon coming up with ways by which she can actually force her way into the royal family. She's strong-willed. She's got opinions. So that's why she, we've got the kids and the family that we've got today. First and foremost, Kate did brilliantly well to get into Sir Andrews. She's an amazing, an amazing, an amazing girl. But that wasn't noted. It was all to do with Kate. You've got to be here on this day, wearing these clothes, doing these things and showing your legs. And it's just not my family. It's just not the way that Carol operates. My mum and dad were the most brilliant people. The thought of Carol suggesting to my mum's granddaughter to show a bit of leg, it is so far away from the truth. It's just ridiculous. As they say in the trade, I think this series jumped the shark when suddenly the ghost of Diana appears. Were you sort of laughing out loud or head in the hands or switch channels? I got angry if I'm brutally honest. It's very difficult when you talk about Diana because it's so polarising with people's opinions of the mum of our future king. So one wants to be respectful of all of that and the things that she did do, she did help modernise. And I just don't think that was fair for anyone watching or fair on the future monarchy. 
that was for TV ratings. So I didn't like that. And I think the Royal family got a job to do and they're, they're doing it the best way that they can. I will listen to an opinion. I will see it through. But once it becomes so farcical, I just end up switching off. Obviously, you're understandably not happy about the way that your sister's betrayed. But what also about Kate? Because we see in the earlier episodes, she's kind of seen cutting out pictures of William and putting them on her wall. I mean, you know, I thought that was kind of very embarrassing betrayal. What did you think? Look, William was a good-looking boy, but he's hardly brossed, right? And the whole concept of her having cutouts of William was so funny. <laughs> Gary, what is it like seeing your family um, portrayed on screen? For us, we can watch this and debate whether it's fact or fiction, but it, it must be much more emotional for you. If it was done in the right way, I don't think anyone would really mind. If it was done with a bit of sympathy and empathy. But I just do think that, you know, you, you can tell the tone of the producers behind this of where they're going with it and what they wanted as the outcome. Well, we've seen Spitting Image, right? We've got the Royals. And I'll be honest with you, some bit's quite funny. He's done tongue-in-cheek and he's okay. So I'm not precious about it. It's the nature of the world. And please, God, bring back the day when we can take the mick out of each other because it's all gone too far. But when it gets to something that is so personal and so made up, at a moment in time when I think it matters... That's the point which basically bored me over. And they, they basically just ripped out the really, really good formula. They've just gone into, you know, cash in their lunch and vouchers. This podcast is The Crown Fact or Fiction. Speaking as a, a family member, what is your view? Is it fact or is it fiction? I don't know. If they wrote a book, where would you put it? It's, it's not going to be in the history of art or something, is it? It's going to be, it's going to be right over there. Put, put it in the kids section. <laughs> Well, thanks to our guest, Gary Goldsmith, for joining us. Gary, by the way, has his own podcast uh, called Pints of View. It's out there, folks. Uh, have a listen. And thank you all for joining us for this episode of The Crown Fact or Fiction. Once again, we'd like to thank you for your kind comments and messages and share a comment or two that have been left by listeners. We've got a lovely one from Becky. She says, please, please, please go back to series one, episode one, cover all the episodes from there. <laughs> I'm up to date on your available episodes and I need more. Do you want to do more, Robert? <laughs> I, I, yeah, Becky, look, uh, thank you for the idea. Um, I think, where are we now? We've done nine. That will be another uh, 50. Uh, I've already got grey hairs. Go. I've gone grey, Becky, yeah, already. <laughs> yeah, but I, it's, it's, look, it's a nice idea. Let's, let's see what the bosses thing but there's some other lovely ones here um emily eddery love the podcast do you think the later episodes in this series were influenced much by harry's autobiography spare or would the scripts have been written before the book's publication that's a really good question emily i suspect bits of it clearly have been informed by it even if peter morgan the uh, the, the the main man says that he didn't read it Absolutely. And if you've enjoyed listening and you haven't already, please do give us a five-star rating and a follow. If you leave us a comment or a review, we might read it out on the next episode. And we also just love getting them. We love to be praised. Thank you very much. <laughs> and finally, if you'd like to send us a WhatsApp message, take a look in the show notes for our number. But for now, thank you so much for listening to The Crown, Fact or Fiction. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>